Let me invite you to turn in your copy of the word to Genesis 39. We return to the saga, the story of, of Joseph. It's interesting that in the first part of Genesis, you know, God's really active. God talks a lot. God shows up a lot. He's very audible. In creation, he speaks. With Abraham, he comes to and talks to him. Isaac and Jacob, God's always breaking in. He's wrestling with Jacob. He shows him a vision of a huge staircase. There are miracles everywhere. And then you get to the life of Joseph, and that's kind of all out the window. We saw, we've seen the dreams, and that's kind of it. There are no miracles here. There's no voice. There's no appearance. We have God's silence. We saw what looked like God's silence last time. And that horrible, sickening, skeevy, sketchy story of Judah and Tamar. Right? The way in which sin worked in Judah's life and the beautiful way that God's grace counteracted that with Tamar's courage. That's the foil for this chapter. That's the foil. Judah is the foil, the character, uh, the negative side. And Joseph, we come really to the light side, to a man who is not driven by his passions or desires, but a man who uh, is obedient in the blessing that he receives. I mean, this is the fundamental worry that you and I have, isn't it? The fundamental worry that you and I have as we come to this text is what do you get for all the work of being a Christian? What do you get? What's your reward for being obedient, for being a good Christian boy or girl? What's your reward? Is there a gold medal? You know, is it like uh, soccer nowadays in, in third grade? Do we all get participation trophies? Is there actually something to get from there? Is a benefit? Is there is there goodness? When you're faithful, what happens? All of us would agree that obedience leads to blessing. Psalm 1 tells us that. The man who follows the way of the Lord will be blessed. But there are plenty of folks out there who think that... Uh, that means I get rich. That means I get health. That means I get happiness. But what does Joseph get? What does Joseph get? If we come here to the text, let's look at it. We'll read the whole of the chapter. It's from the hand of the Lord and Moses. Let's hear their words. Let's receive them with faith. Store them up in love. We read that now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house... And over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. 
How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her, to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. As soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home and she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as the master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. I found the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Ask his blessing that we might have our hearts opened to see wonderful things from this word. Father, we come and we ask that you would show us your son and show us our adoption as your sons. Show us the way to be steadfast and yet the blessing that we gain from our obedience to you. And Lord, we pray that you would give us Christ. By your spirit, open up these words through our hearts and our minds. To know them and love them and do them and trust them. For he asks us in Christ's name. Amen. We think this is a story about one temptation. I mean, this is what, you know, uh, teenagers, right? Teenage boys, teenage girls, this is what your parents tell you. This is a story they, show, they pull out to tell you flee, flee from lust, flee from immorality. It's good. It's certainly a fine story for that. And yet, I think it's actually the story really about three temptations. It's about three temptations. Let's look first. The first six verses, and really the first, the first temptation that Joseph faced. The, the text opened by telling us where we've been. And since I've been away, and we've been away from Joseph for a, a couple of weeks, uh, remember where we, where we are. He's been sold into slavery. He had been rejected by his own. His bro- he came to his own. His brothers rejected him. They sold him. He's a slave. Three times, these opening verses, we are told he's with the Egyptians. He's with the Egyptians. Now, the people who are reading this first are the Israelites who knew what it meant to be a slave in Egypt. He's a slave in Egypt. We're told he's serving a a captain of the guard, Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. That does not mean like the security guy. That's not like the bodyguard. This is actually the same phrase used later on about 
the commander-in-chief of the Babylonian armies. And so Potiphar's not the secret service guy. He's actually uh, the second most powerful man in the Egyptian empire. He is the chair of the joint chiefs of staff, if you will. He is the commander-in-chief of the armies of Egypt. And so what, what does Joseph do? He's in this high-profile house. We read that he, he serves well. Verse 2, the Lord's with Joseph. He became a successful man. He's in the house of his Egyptian master. He succeeds. He profits. He gets all the responsibilities of the household under his authority. All that he did, well, he has the Midas touch. He's successful. And it's so successful that even Potiphar sees, verse 3, that the Lord was with him. Potiphar sees something divine, more than just a good luck charm. He sees something divine behind Joseph's competence. He likes the idea, of course, as you would, of a God helping him out of something supernatural working. So he gives more and more over. We're told in verse 6, all that Potiphar has to worry about, what's for dinner? What's for dinner? What do I want out of all the luxuries of life? Let me order the menu for the evening. That's about it. He's carefree. Because God has blessed Joseph. Now think about Joseph. He had none of the comforts that you had this Thanksgiving. None of the comforts you had. You may enjoy your family. Joseph's family hated him. You may love Georgia. You may love your hometown. Joseph was far from his. He's far from the promised land. You may like your freedom. I hope you do. I think most of us do like our freedom. Joseph had no freedom. He was a slave. And it seems like God's not talking to him. There's no audible voice. You know, if this was a modern kind of Christian movie, we'd have a scene where the friendly Egyptian chaplain comes up and perks Joseph up and commiserates with him. Don't worry, you'll get better. But he's all alone. And yet there is one thing that still is constant. The Lord is with him. It's in verse 2. It's all of the chapter. The Lord's with him. The Lord's with him. The Lord's blessing him. Why is God blessing Joseph? It's because God had come to his great-granddad, Abraham, and promised, I will bless your children. It's because he has promised to bless Joseph. He's set him above his brothers. He extends this blessing not just to Joseph, but to pagans, to Egyptians. He says that when my man's in this position... His integrity, his blessing will benefit not just himself, but others. All Egypt. And yet, I think when we read through this, we miss the temptations here. We want to skip to the temptation. We miss the first temptation. There's a first temptation here. It's probably pretty easy to miss. There's a power temptation. There's a power temptation here. Potiphar is the commander-in-chief of the armies. And who's Joseph? He is basically in charge of the whole household. He has a whole bunch of power. He, he's gotten obtained, for, especially for a slave in those days, an inordinate amount of power. I know verse 4 says overseer of the house, but it's not just like an overseer. He, he has the ability to do everything for Potiphar, to order things well. He's not just a personal assistant. He is like this chief operating officer of a major corporation. That, that's, that word overseer is the same word used to describe Joshua and his relationship to Moses. He's second in command, or second in command of Egypt. 
And the question is, how does Joseph use this power? I mean, you think he could just make life awful. If you wanted to kind of sabotage the Egyptian war machine, Joseph could do it. He could say, I hate these people. They're not Christians. They're not like me. I'm a slave. My friends, my family have abandoned me. I'm going to really get back at them. He could take vengeance, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He can make Potiphar's life hellish. But what does he do instead? He blesses. He blesses. Because the blessing of the Lord is on him. And we live in a day, of course, that speaks a lot about power. It's really obsessed with who you are and where you are and how much do you have. And you think about Potiphar's wife. How does she use her power? Of course, we'll get to her temptation in a second. But how does she use her power? She uses her power very clearly for herself. She uses her power for her, for her own gain. And yet we see here that Joseph successfully evades this power temptation, which is really the more subtle temptation. He, he evades the power temptation. Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, like a tree whose fruit does not fade. Everything he does shall prosper. Joseph has every right to be angry, to be bitter, to be upset, to question God, to doubt God. But he doesn't. He faithfully serves the Lord, his God, and God prospers him. Now, isn't that the Sunday school teaching we like? You're faithful, you obey, you do good, you get good. You, you, you do well, you get well. You do good works, you have a good life. All will be well, happily ever after. And yet, uh, for some reason, when we do like Joseph, when we try to, be obey, to obey and we have integrity, it doesn't work out that way. It doesn't work out that way. And yet, we need to turn to the real, the second temptation, the, the main temptation. We get a side note here, beginning in verse 6, the end of verse 6. We, we get a kind of by-the-way comment, Joseph is handsome. He's attractive. He's a stud. Now, some of y'all may be really resonating with that verse. Good-looking, good guy. But we're seeing a man who seems like God is blessing everything he does. Every move he makes prospers. And yet the story goes on. The tempter comes. Verse 7 to verse 20, the tempter arrives. This handsome guy, this Midas touch man, this overseer, this one who is able to do everything well. He's very competent. It seems like, unfortunately, Potiphar's not around too much. Potiphar's off looking at the armies. He's making plans. Maybe they're going to fight the Babylonians. Who knows? But he's not around too much. And... Uh, his wife is, unfortunately. Verse 7, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. It's two blunt words in the Hebrew. Now, lie. Now, bed, me. Like a cave woman, demanding. It's the tone you do with a slave, which is what Joseph is. She's not making a suggestion. She's giving a command. From one who has all power to one who has, comparatively, very little. Put yourself in the shoes of Joseph for a second. I know, I know we're in church. We like to think, make things nice and easy. But for a second, put yourself in the feet of Joseph. A man that God has said as a king is now a slave. He can't free himself. He can't go anywhere. He can't go, you know, to 
uh, find uh, a wife for himself. And it would be easy in that moment, not just to complain, not just to be upset, not just to scream at God. But, you know, what's the harm for Joseph's probably 19 years old at this point in time? Powerful woman saying, you're attractive, you're desirable. Nobody would know. What's the harm? The master's not there. How easy would it be for Joseph to say, look, I've had a dream. God's going to bless me. I'm the special one. I'm really unique. I deserve this. I deserve to be happy. God wants me. No, no, no. God wants me to be happy. Because he's already spoke, he's already promised me. He's blessing everything I do. I'm going to treat myself. I, I deserve this. Isn't this how we sin? Maybe not in this way, but isn't this how we, 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 we start off sinning? The argument happens and the anger builds up and you lash out. The child misbehaves. They thwart your control. You punish or you, on the other side, your parents don't listen to you. They don't understand you. And so it's okay to misbehave because they just don't, they just don't know who I am. I mean, all the junk you have to deal with, you deserve it, right? So easy to say, well, you know, I'm just following orders. I'm just doing what she says. Do you not understand here that this is not just a this is not just some random temptation in the book of Genesis. This is a deliberate replay of the Garden of Eden. A deliberate replay. A woman comes to the righteous man with forbidden fruit, asking him to take power he doesn't have. Who cares if it's not yours? Live in a place you don't own. That's the temptation of the garden with Adam and Eve. They were told all this blessing, all this prosperity, not this one tree. And the tempter comes and says, you can do great things if you only take and take it, take it, taste it. It'll be good. And that's where Joseph is. Why be bound by boring rules that daddy talked about? Why be, why be bound by some boring rules? You're in Egypt now. Let loose. Why keep, and perhaps this is the most dangerous temptation, why keep serving a God who makes you a slave? You know, if God's put you in this low position, if this is what obedience brings, why keep doing it? And this is where you are as a Christian. I hope you realize this. These are the words that temptation, you may not have this particular temptation. You may have a similar one. I know you face them every week. These are the words that temptation tells you. This is what your heart says. It says, look, you're in the right. You can do it. You're special. You're the, you're the good kind of person. You're a Christian. Even as your conscience says, no, it's a lie. I mean, you're doing well in life. You've earned a break. You're tired. You're hungry. You're sick. You can come up with plenty of the rationalizations. You've earned a pass. You've earned a break. The rules apply for others. But listen to what Joseph says. It's a noble reply, verse 8. He refused. He said to his master's wife, look, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So he, he has kind of two arguments here. The first argument is, I've been given so much by my master. Look at what the master of my house has given. How can I do this against him? But then he says, which may seem weird to us, how can I sin against God? He says it's not really a sin against Potiphar in one, one sense. It, really, the, the closing argument is it's a sin against God. 
you can't help but think of Psalm 51 after David sent to Bathsheba. He says to God against you, you only have I sinned. And you think of David and Bathsheba, you think of Uriah. I think Uriah might have said, hello, you sinned against me, I'm dead. I think Uriah would have something to say about that. Don't you? How can David say, how can Joseph say, oh, it's, uh, it's, it's against God? It's the worst kind of kind of churchy lingo when, you know, the, the kind you hear from high school breakups. Oh, God told me I should break up with you. I just don't want to disobey God, you know? It's not that I don't like you. I, I really like you. I just want to disobey God. Is that what's going on here? Well, David knows, as Joseph knows, David knows, as great as his sins are against Uriah and Bathsheba, ultimately his rebellion was against God. And Joseph knows, on the flip side, it's not just an evil against Potiphar. It's an affront to the maker and the redeemer, to the God of all creation. And that tells us, of course, that sin's not measured by who catches you. It's not a sin only if your parents or your husband or your wife or your elders or whoever finds out or your sister finds out or your brother finds out. We measure our ethics too often by who might catch us. But the reality is that everything we do is quorum deo, is before God's face. And Joseph wants zero of this temptation. And notice, by the way, it doesn't just happen one time, verse 10, day after day. Sometimes we kind of read this story and we think, well, you know, it happened one, maybe two times, right? We were recorded. So it happened like kind of one time and Joseph had, he really had the Holy Spirit energy going that day. And he was just in tune with God and he was able to say, yeah, no to temptation. Good job, Joseph. No, it's not a one-time deal. He didn't have a power surge from the Spirit. It's day after day after day after day after day. Lewis puts it best. Yes, Lewis puts it best. The current idea, and still current for us, he says, is that good people don't know what temptation is. That's a silly idea. You love Lewis, right? Just it's silly. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in the first five minutes to temptation has no idea how strong it would be an hour later. This is why bad people, it's a brilliant point, bad people don't know a lot about badness. You have this idea that really bad guys, right? oh, they don't know a lot about being bad. No, they don't. Lewis says this, they live a sheltered life by always giving in. It's a beautiful way of putting it. Bad people live a sheltered life by always giving in. See, Joseph has to remember day in and day out, Whose am I? I'm God's. Whose am I? I'm the Lord's. He resists daily. He feels the temptation all the time. And the question really is, how does he resist the temptation? This is an important point for us to grasp. How does he resist the temptation? You'll see his point here. How then can I do, verse 9, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How can he resist the temptation? A lot of folks today and throughout history, the Greeks, the Buddhists today, modern uh, psychologists think this way, is that self-control is a matter of the will. Resisting temptation is a matter of the will. That you have to look inside. You say, okay, I have a bad desire. Stop. Stop that desire. Repress it. Maybe distract yourself. Cope. I need some coping mechanism to help me out. That's what uh, modern... Psychology says. But Joseph does not look inside himself. He does not look inside himself and say, I need to stop this. 
the ultimate way in which he resists temptation, the ultimate way in which he shows self-control is not through willpower. It's through heart power. It's a little corny. Okay, I'll tell you what it actually is. It's looking outside. It's looking to God. How does he resist temptation? He looks to God. How does he exercise self-control? He, he looks to God. He doesn't look inside himself and suppress his desire for her. He looks outside and enhances his desire for God. He says, how can I trample on the God of my life? In other words, self-control is not basically the will suppressing the heart's desires. It's actually the loves of the heart being reordered. Self-control is not your willpower. Self-control is your heart power. Joseph has an overriding love. And that one overriding love so dominates all the other loves. He has a passionate, a supreme love. You know, Freud, the, the psychologist, discredited some these days, but still, Freud says spiritual longings are just frustrated sexual desires. The Bible says sexual desires are frustrated spiritual longings. They're frustrated heart-level longings. You need, in other words, what Potiphar's wife needed was a supremely, ultimately beautiful person to come to her and say, I think you're beautiful. I give myself wholly to you. That's what marriage is, you know? That's what marriage is. You give yourself. That's why physical intimacy is an expression of pre-existent spiritual intimacy. I give myself wholly to you. And that's, of course, what the gospel is. Jesus Christ, the ultimate beauty, says, I give myself for you. I am what you need. And he alone, therefore, can give you the heart power, not the willpower, simply the heart power. That's why real self-control is not about really trying hard and pressing it down. It's about reordering your heart love and being so mastered by the love of Jesus Christ that your desire for him overwhelms everything else. It puts all the other loves in their proper place. That's Joseph. And yet, despite Joseph's self-control, despite his willingness to not give in, it doesn't really work, does it? There's this last act of verse 11 and to, to, to 20. You know, the wife of Potter grabs him one day and she commands the same act and she grabs his, his jacket, his cloak, his garment, and he, he manages to wiggle out of it or some way he's able to get out of it. Uh, but she keeps, she keeps the, the, the evidence, exhibit A. And then she reveals just how evil she is. She reveals her manipulation tactics. She calls her servants together. And she tells them a story. It's fascinating. Um, look at verse 14. She begins by attacking her husband, which is interesting. A lot of dynamics going on there. See, he has brought, Potiphar has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. So she blames Joseph and she blames her husband. And she convinces, of course, them all that Joseph is to blame. And then Potiphar gets home and she, she twists the story to, to fit him. She uses the cloak and says, oh, this is the way your servant treated me. Aren't you the master here? She's very, very clever, very devious. And so, of course, what happens to Joseph? He's taken, he's put in prison, verse 20. He's not put in a, a nice white-collar, cushy prison like Martha Stewart. He's in the gulag. He's in the place you put traitors, maximum security threats. And so he sits there 
Verse 20, he is there in prison. Second in command is a slave, his robe torn off, falsely accused. He's now in the pit. He is now a real live prisoner, traitor, scum. I mean, this is what he gets for being obedient. This is what he gets for not giving the temptation. This is what he gets for not walking in the steps of the scoffers. He is the blessed and happy and holy Christian. Everything he does will prosper. I mean, is this prosperity? Uh, not looking like it to me. Is, this, is, is God's word actually true? Is Psalm 1 actually true? Or is that just one more Christian thing that we crochet or we quilt, we put on our walls or our bedside tables? Is that something for religious suckers? You know, they get manipulated and taken advantage of just like uh, Potiphar's wife manipulates people. Does God really prosper? I think one thing is very clear. Joseph is not ultimately blessed in the way that we count blessing. He's left in prison, betrayed by his own. That's how it feels. And may you, how, how you may feel. But is Joseph actually blessed? He obeys God's law. He's thrown down. Well, we have to see what happened in the pits. The third temptation. The third temptation, beginning really in verse 21. Uh, through the end of the chapter, verse 23, that the third temptation here, and I think one of the most challenging temptations, is what you do after you succeed. What you do after you don't give in to temptation and things don't go your way. And you're in the pit. The temptation is, of course, to believe that God's not there. He's in the depths. And yet, the author, Moses, really gives us kind of a sense of deja vu here as he piles up at the end of the story the exact words he used the start of the story. He says, verse 21, the Lord with Joseph. He said that at the beginning with Potiphar. Verse 21, he showed him steadfast love. He gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison, just like he had given him favor in the sight of Potiphar. Verse 22, Joseph in charge, just like he was in charge in Potiphar's house. Verse 23, the keeper of the prison, he had no idea. The warden didn't even do anything. Joseph was the mafia don. He was the guy in charge. See, friends, this tells us the story of Joseph isn't over. He seems like he's all alone, but God's with him. The promise-keeping, covenant-faithful king is with him in the dungeon. He ends up ruling the whole prison. So what does this show us? I think it shows us first that suffering does not divorce you from God's presence. Suffering... Faithful suffering does not divorce you from God's presence. doesn't remove you from God's blessing. Because blessing is not defined by you, but it's defined by God. Blessing, happiness, holiness is defined by being in God's presence. The best place of the happy Christian, the happiest Christian on earth, is the one who's with God. The holiest Christian on earth is the one who's in God's presence. Do you see here the way in which Joseph... Even in prison. We don't see that he's complaining. We don't see that he's uh, upset. We don't see him lash out. We see him blessed. Now, just listen to the whole story here once more. Potiphar gives all things in the hands of Joseph. Potiphar's wife plots and takes the robe of Joseph. He descends into what feels like death. He is forsaken, it seems like. But all things are given once more into his hands. He sits there as a ruler. Joseph is ruling over the prison. Don't you see this not just in Joseph, but you see this in the greater Joseph? You see it in Jesus Christ 
himself, Jesus Christ, your Savior, he had dominion over all things. He was at the rightful place. He was no slave of any man. He was at the Father's right hand before creation began, but by God's design, by God's will, Christmas, he came into this house. He came to earth. He took on our flesh and our blood, the master of all. He did not have birth in the royal robes of Caesar in Rome, but he became a slave. The master of all became a slave. He did nothing but obey. He did nothing but uh, righteousness. He did not give in the temptation. His face always before the fathers. And what did he get in return? He is mocked. He is disrobed. He is disrobed. He is betrayed. He is crucified. And he descends into the prison of the grave itself. But don't you see that in that obedience, God had not forsaken him. The cross is not the end of the story. The grave led to a resurrection. And now where is Jesus Christ? He is reigning. He is ruling. He is exalted. All power and honor and wealth and strength are given once more to him. And so it is that your story isn't over as a Christian. In your pit, in your prison, in your pain, there is actually really hope. Does obedience lead to blessing? Yes, it does. Unequivocally, yes, it does. But what is blessing? In this life, it may look like suffering, hardship, death, no home for Thanksgiving. Your clothes ripped off you, no clothing. We see that, of course, because we have Joseph. Though he wasn't a with innocent, he wasn't a criminal. He was falsely charged. He is thrown in with the criminals. Though he wasn't a transgressor, he was numbered with the transgressors. So was Jesus Christ. And unlike Joseph, he had no beauty or majesty that we should desire him. Let's think about our Savior for a second. How did he resist temptation? What enabled Jesus Christ to resist temptation his whole life? I think we would all agree that if a good man knows more about temptation than a bad man, then the perfect man knows more about temptation than you do or I do because we still give in. And he never gave in. Why was he able to do it? How did he endure to the end? He had one mastering love. He had one overpowering love. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, Hebrews tells us. That joy was you. That joy was his father's love shed for you. He loved you for his father's sake. And that's why, friends, even in the middle of this age, when you're suffering, hits you like a hurricane. When you give in, not like Joseph, when you fail, where Joseph succeeded, God will not forsake you because Verse 21, he is the God of steadfast love. You see, it's easy to preach a story and say, just say no. Teenage, teenagers, just say no. It's temptation. Just say no. Willpower. You know, it's interesting that Nancy Reagan uh, probably had the best uh, first lady program of them all. At least the most memorable. You know, I, I remember it. Just say no. Just say no to drugs, right? It's successful in terms of getting a lot of uh, power behind it. That's what I grew up learning. 
And it's easy to teach a story as a story about just saying no. You should say no. That's right. That's true. Yes. All of us, young or old, should say no, should flee from temptation, resist it. But there are plenty of folks who don't flee drugs or lust or anything else. They give in. So what do you do then? What do you do for disobedient Christians? Friends, the fact remains that the great blessing of God is that we look to the merit of Christ. We look to him, his spirit. So may that gospel, may his love for you so lead you to resist temptation and all the rest because he has not forsaken you even if long ago you think he should have. Let his mercy keep you and sustain you. And may that love be that great desire. May his love given for you that we even come to the table. We see his love once more given for us. May that, not your willpower, may that give you the heart power to live in love for him. Let's pray. Lord, we come this morning. We come seeing temptation. We come knowing that life can be a trial. We come perhaps with full tummies from holiday meals. We come nonetheless with souls that need to be filled up with your love. We come with hearts that need to receive once more your grace and kindness. We pray as we come to this table that you would set aside these ordinary elements, the, the bread and the wine, that you would set them aside for your people's use, that you would uh, allow us to once more be before your face and, and before the face of our Savior, that we would see him as he defied temptation. And endured even to his lifeblood being spilled. And pray, Father, that that would strengthen us as we commune with our Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen.